And once you start really doing a deep dive into curiosity, you realize that all the TED Talks and all the management consultants and all the business books on this topic are really detailing a very non-nuanced, non-practical idea that there's just, you're curious or you're incurious. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. It's been almost exactly three years since I made my first public foray into curiosity with a lead talk, like a TED Talk, but much less intimidating, for Leadership Arlington's annual homecoming. I'd spent the better part of a year being curious about curiosity, reading what I could, thinking about where and how and why curiosity showed up or didn't, and then I shared what I was learning. I opened with a question. Could my audience guess which wasn't true, that I was one of 12 siblings, that I once fell down the face of a glacier, or that I have performed as a belly dancer? What do you think? I'll come back to that. Little did I know that talk would catapult me into an essentially full-time fixation on curiosity. One of the very first books I found as I was beginning to investigate curiosity was Todd Cashton's 2010 book, Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredient to Fulfilling Life. It was the earliest book I've found that made an explicit call for choosing to be curious. And among many, my favorite takeaway was a curiosity self-assessment tool that he had developed. And I've said since I found it that if I were back in the regular workplace, I would make a curiosity inventory part of my interviewing and supervision. I'd be looking to hire, cultivate, and reward curious people. And now, Cashton's gone one better. In December 2017, he published a major upgrade to his first curiosity inventories in the Journal of Research and Personality with an article entitled The Five-Dimensional Curiosity Scale, capturing the bandwidth of curiosity and identifying four unique subgroups of curious people. And along with collaborators, he's been making a splash as part of the cover story on curiosity in the September-October 2018 Harvard Business Review. Todd Cashton is a public speaker, psychologist, professor of psychology, and senior scientist at the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University. He describes himself as, quote, devoted to understanding how people can improve the quality of their lives and offering the tools to do so. He uses cutting-edge science to help people function optimally in life and business. And of course, I love this idea of applied and multi-dimensional curiosity. And I'm delighted to have Todd Cashin with me today. So welcome, Todd. Thank you. I sound so much better in paper than I do in person. I appreciate it. <laughs> so you have been thinking and working on this topic for, I don't know, 10 years. What got you interested in curiosity? I mean, there's several, there's several biographical pieces that get there. I think the, the work-related aspect that got me into it is I started my career working on Wall Street and I was raised by a grandmother who's one of the first women to break the glass ceiling on the New York Stock Exchange floor. So I was raised to be Gordon Gecko because I'm a child of the 80s. Oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, 
my initial interest and curiosity was how did my grandmother never make it past where she was working for Lehman Brothers? Mm. And obviously I was not aware of sexism in you know, and how organizational hierarchies operate as a seven, eight, nine-year-old. But that was the beginning. And then when I ended up working on Wall Street, um, what I realized was that it was such a soul-sucking job. It was really exciting. You know, the, the parties were great. The market was fascinating. But there was there were no questions being asked. There was nothing mm. to explore. It was basically, if we watch numbers on a screen be lower than expected or higher than expected. We would just short the stock or buy the stocks. And that's all it was. And really quickly, I was like, how can people be so incurious about this? And on my free time, I'd read books about the science of intelligence and the psychology of love. And my friend just kind of went up to me one night at a, on a golf course at three o'clock in the morning and said, if you're going to read all these books in your free time, why don't you just flip your worlds and go into psychology and invest when you get home. And that was it in my 20s. So so when you went into psychology, did you know you would study curiosity or did that come later? No, I, I started studying panic attacks. And I was in a research lab where we basically were Hannibal Lecters and would put a mask on people that suffered from panic attacks. And we would inject them with 35% CO2 airflow, which basically is going to induce a panic attack in a large number of people. And when I was studying these people for about six months, and I would ask them questions about what do they do in their lives? How does the, how do their panic attacks prevent them from, from doing things that they want to do? What would they be doing if they didn't have panic attacks? And what I realized in my first year of grad school was, and I remember, and actually I have this, I still have this down, 1998, I have the paper that says people that suffer from anxiety disorders Yes, they are impaired by their anxiety, but they are suffering from residual unsatisfied curiosity. Mm. And that line that I wrote down on a piece of paper in class in my first year of grad school became uh, 20 years of work of studying of this is the thing that bothers people is that they are they have this sense of wonder, but they don't they aren't willing to act on it. And that's and that is is more distressing than not having desires, wants, and motivations that you want to pursue. Well, to me, that's also really interesting because, you know, I posit this idea about choosing to be curious, but that almost makes it sound like, wow, this isn't really a choice. You need you need to be curious. Like, your life and well-being depend on it. Yeah? Yeah, that, that's a complicated statement. I would say yes and no. I think you can live a fulfilling life without being curiosity. And, and I think it comes to, we have different life objectives. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm a real big fan of cognitive diversity. And some people, the majority of people, especially in the United States, if you ask them, what is your fundamental life objective? They're going to say it's to be happy for myself, my family, and my kids. Not that bad. But for a number of us, that's actually not the life objective. The objective is, is growth-oriented, is that I want to learn and discover and explore and figure out what I'm capable of. And when that's your life objective, Many of the things that you do actually pull you away from being happy. Mm-hmm. And you know, two weeks ago, I took my 11-year-old daughter with me to Japan, and we climbed Mount Fuji. And as we were climbing it, she was like, why do people, why do humans do these things to entertain themselves? And I said, if, if the climb wasn't hard, you wouldn't have the thrill of knowing what's, what's possible. Yeah. And it stuck with her. It stuck yeah. with her. Yeah. Just of, yeah. of like, listen, like, this is, the reason that it's fun is that it sucks. 
<laughs> and that we do not know whether we can actually do this. And if we can see, like, we can actually see the incline, see where we're going, and know exactly what's going to happen, it wouldn't be fun. We could just watch a documentary about people climbing Mount Fuji on Netflix. Yeah. So I love that you talk about this um, this new multidimensional scale as being about the full bandwidth of curiosity, because I think it takes curiosity out of kind of a single definition or a kind of a... Uh, a flatness um, and and throws it out into this wild, unwieldy shape. Talk uh, about that journey as you as you began to put, give more and more dimension to your understanding of curiosity. Sure, and, and maybe we'll talk because, like, literally three minutes before this, we started talking. Um, I submitted a paper on a. A multi my multi-dimensional work-related curiosity scale. Yeah, so I want to hear about four that. dimensions in the workplace. I, I always said as a scientist that I do not want to create any new theories because there's so much great work out there over the past um, eight or nine decades. And the great progenitors of my work are people that were studying curiosity in the 50s and the 60s, Daniel Berlin in particular in Toronto, who mm-hmm. is an unheralded genius. And once you start really doing a deep dive into curiosity, you realize that all the TED Talks and all the management consultants and all the business books on this topic, as you described, are are really detailing a very non-nuanced, non-practical idea that there's just, you're curious or you're incurious. And there's basically this this single dimension. And that doesn't capture what real life is like. There are different strands, flavors, ways that it operates. And one of the beauties about the, this five-dimensional model, which is inspired by taking isolated strands of work and just mixing it together. So it's not really, I shouldn't have credit. And, I, and you know, all my papers cite the sources, is that this is basically a synthesis of 80 years of work mm-hmm. on the topic. And so just to describe two of them, to really bring the point home, my two favorite, no, they're not my favorite dimensions, but the the archetype, like the core dictionary definition of curiosity is a dimension that we call joyous exploration. And joyous exploration has a very positive emotional flavor to it. I mean, this is a kid that can spend three hours skipping stones on a pond. And basically, they're just changing the trajectory and they're seeing how the wind plays a role and they're seeing the thickness of the rock, how it affects it and seeing how their wrist motion plays and seeing how they're doing it differently compared to the adult who's, you know, 120 pounds heavier standing next to them. That aspect, it's just, it's joy, it's play, it's fun. It's what we think of when we think of what do we lose when we move from being a kid and then moving into an adulthood into a Dilbert-like job. The other dimension, which is kind of a contrast to that, is what we call deprivation sensitivity. Deprivation sensitivity is the recognition that there is, you are deprived of information that you seek, want, need. Uh, that's you a sort of craving, like, I got to I gotta know this, I got to learn this, I got to understand yeah, so, this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't do Sudoku and I don't do crossword puzzles, but, you know, when I used to commute to Wall Street, you'd see people and it's it's not, you can see, it doesn't look like pleasure when you're looking at them. It looks frustrating and annoying. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, like, ah, if I can just get this one word, then I'll solve the crossword puzzle. And it's the engineer late at night trying to figure out there's a bug in the code, but I can't figure out what it is. They can't sleep, and they wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning writing things down, and they want to sleep. They would like to hang out with their romantic partner. They would like to be relaxing, but they're just, they need to know the answer. Like, why is this 
Why is this software crashing so often? And so if you don't understand that deprivation sensitivity, it looks tense. It's annoying. You want to resolve something. If you don't understand that there's two different dimensions of curiosity, you won't understand that the second person is not a worrier necessarily or pessimistic or a curmudgeon. They're just as curious potentially as other person, but the profile of how this looks is so different that you can misperceive that person as being an annoying character when in mm-hmm. fact, this is exactly what you want someone to do if you're trying to solve problems, understand, learn, grow, innovate, create. So then, so that's two dimensions, but then you went beyond that, right? Yeah, so my my so this is actually my personal favorite dimension. My favorite dimension of trust that gets ignored is what I well let me let me work up to it. Is if you were to go to Africa and go on a safari and you were to see while you were at a pub someone being chased down by a rhinoceros, you would be curious. I mean you would definitely yeah. be you'd be intrigued in a sense of wonder. But if you were walking through the safari or even in a Jeep going through the safari and a rhinoceros was chasing you, you would not be curious. So what that speaks to is that the desire for novelty, uncertainty, mysteries, complexity is insufficient to understand curiosity. That's Mm -hmm. part of it. It's like the seeking out of novelty and challenge. But another feature is necessary to be curious, and that is the belief that you can handle or cope with the novelty that you're being confronted with. If you don't think you can handle the novelty of being chased by a rhinoceros, you're not going to be curious. When it feels that there's a sense of threat, your curiosity will drop and you'll be experiencing something such as fear or confusion. So one of the other dimensions of curiosity that's important is what we call stress tolerance. And that is basically the willingness to embrace the doubt, confusion, or anxiety that arises from lusting for the new. And this, And what we find with our work, and now we probably have with this model, um, about six or seven different studies, is that this tends to be the greatest predictor of well-being, happiness, innovation, uh, work performance, engagement. Most for most things, this ends up being the biggest driving dimension. Is and what's what I love about that is this is a dimension people aren't talking about enough. It, it could be it could be inside your head in terms mm-hmm. of your thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations, or it could be out in the world. So the so the fourth dimension is what we call thrill seeking, and this is probably the the least the most infrequent in your typical adult in society. And thrill seeking essentially stems from um, a good 50 years of research, most of it done by Marvin Zuckerberg, who now passed away, uh, which is which is that the willingness to take social, financial, legal, and personal risk to acquire novel experiences. And so it's, it's different mm-hmm. than stress mm-hmm. tolerance. It, this is basically, it's like I have a high susceptibility to boredom, uh, I seek out thrills. I love roller coasters. I like when when there's serious risk on the line. I love day trade. Um, I love first dates. I love going to parties where I don't know anybody. So I truly love being in groups where people have ideological differences from myself. All of that kind of fits nicely under this thrill-seeking dimension. So it's not just the skydiving. It could also be the social risk as well, which mm-hmm. I think are more common in our everyday lives. That's what that's the fourth dimension. And then the fifth dimension is social curiosity. 
And social curiosity, most people, this is what they will tend to think of when they think of curiosity besides joyous exploration, is that there are two things, two ways that we are socially curious. One is that we ask questions of people. We meet people. We want to learn from them. I mean, it's the, the greatest source of knowledge and wisdom are other people, whether they're dead in terms of they wrote books or made videos or they're actually you can hang out with them at a party or at work. And in this way is where, you know, we're constantly collecting new perspectives and ideas. Now, a more sinister version of social curiosity is where it's surreptitious, mm. where we're not actually interacting with them directly. We are using gossip. We are, we are voyeurs trying to um, listen to other people's conversations. Um, we're observing people, you know, that's, so there's a surreptitious kind of way of, of engaging in social curiosity. And there's a more overt way of actually directly acquiring information from people. Well, and I thought what was interesting about that, because when I did the inventory, that was actually one of my lower ones. I was high in most of them, and I was sort of medium to medium high in social curiosity. And it was like, oh, I don't really like the, the, like the gossip part of this, but I'm always interested in the stories, you know? So I want to hear more, though, about how you see these things playing out in the workplace. Because that's actually where my first interest in curiosity came from was as a chief operating officer, national nonprofit group. I realized I couldn't do my job unless I was curious about all sorts of things that I typically wouldn't or other people in that role wouldn't have been curious about. Tell me what you're learning about how this works in the workplace. Yeah, I really like the last thing you just said about describing yourself at work, about trying to learn things outside of your role and kind of extending of extending what is possible and what I can know that may or may not influence the quality of my work. I mean, I think this is, this is the quality that managers and leaders love and hate at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's really cool is we found the same model to find in the workplace. Now, this, now we didn't explore thrill-seeking because I didn't feel that it was directly relevant to all types of work, so I kind of just didn't, didn't even consider that. Mm. So we basically explored all these same dimensions. The only difference that we found that's really important is social curiosity is now called in the workplace openness to people's ideas. And that is directly about valuing diverse perspectives, intentionally seeking out different approaches that deviate from the status quo at work. And that status quo is also our own preconceived notions of what we think, what we do, and what we think we should be doing. It's a much more important dimension, I believe, in the workplace compared to generally being socially curious, because right now diversity is the exciting topic that everybody's talking about. Like they want to increase diversity. You're hearing about it in, in terms of politics, in terms of senators and governors, the increase in women and minorities who now are at least running for office and winning offices that are happening there. But what's but it's really talked about at a very superficial level at work, which is let's just increase the optics. You have to wait to figure out is what are you aiming for? Like, what, is the, what is the end game of trying to increase the diverse range of ideas and perspectives and people at work? And I don't think people ask this question. I think people have stopped and just said, we have too many white men at work. I realize we're, gonna, we're moving into hot button territory, but that's the beauty of curiosity. Um, and then not, have, not ask the question, but why? Like, what's the end game? Because the end game can't just be having a range of people. It's something about curating these perspectives and people and ideas to get what. And it's yeah. only by asking those questions 
and really being open to people that will answer in a way that's different from you, that you can really realize that you don't really just want 75 people in your workplace who differ in terms of the income of their household, of their of their family when they were raised. You don't just want 75 different states, 75 different counties that people lived in in the United States. You want people that think differently potentially because it's going to increase innovation, because mm-hmm. it's going to prevent groupthink, because... Mm-hmm the group will be less likely to um, waste all of their resources on ideas that have less potential traction because to, you want to consider more markets than you have before. There's, there's, there's hundreds, thousands of reasons why you might have diversity, but you need to know why. And the reason is very simple, is that when you're open to people's ideas that are diverse from yourself, it is not a clean, relaxing, calm situation. It's full of tension. It's full of conflict. It interferes with creating a healthy, safe, trusting community. When you bring people from different perspectives, you are going to get tension. It's worth So yeah. you need you need curiosity and less defensiveness to make this operate. And this is where it gets really exciting, is that it's not that about being curious before it starts. It's about choosing to have a curious mindset as opposed to defensive when you have people with ideological perspectives that conflict with your own. Yeah. This so is hard. have this is hard work. Yes, it is. So have you either seen or kind of developed in your own thinking strategies that you think ought to be used in the workplace given what you're finding? Yeah, we haven't te- we're test driving 11 different strategies right now. Wow. And um, because I want to, you know, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think that's actually been the problem in most of the organizational behavior thinking is that if we just get mindfulness and people start meditating, all of a sudden we're going to have better thinkers, more efficient thinkers, everyone's going to be more engaged. No, there is no panacea. So I want to figure out what works and what works for whom, what works for whom, in which situations, because Anyone who's listening who is working somewhere knows that really important situational parameters such as, is there time pressure to get something done? How much resources do we have? Do you have to be creative about in terms of finding money? Do we have to, who do we have to persuade that these ideas are good? Who are the stakeholders? You know, and then what are the goals and personalities of the people that you're working with? And all of these factors are going to influence what strategies are going to be useful mm-hmm. potentially for to increase curiosity and less defensiveness. And you notice that I'm I'm pitting those two against each other. I, I believe that when we are when we are faced with ideas or experiences that are outside of what we do commonly, the the typical crossroad is do I choose to be curious and open and receptive or do I decide to be defensive and stick with what's known? And I think that's that crossroad is a, a useful useful little metaphor to kind of think about how this operates in day-to-day life. I love that you use that as a metaphor because it's a great segue to my big jar of wannabe analogies. You you game for this final curiosity act here at the end of our conversation? I'm, I'm, I'm your guest. So whatever you serve, I'm eating it. <laughs> oh, I, I love I love the the low level thrill seeking right here. Um, so so I have this big jar um, that is filled with little slips of paper, and they have random words on them. Some of them I have written, but lots of other people have put words in here. So I never know what's coming out of this jar. And I I have pulled three slips out, 
And we're each going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is written on that. So your word is <laughs> cheese, and my word is a rubber band. So you want to go first or you want me to go? Sure, yeah. So the, the reason that cheese, particularly Swiss cheese, was a good metaphor for curiosity is that you want curiosity in some ways is an attentional filter that you can put to your mind. And in some ways, you want to be open and receptive to what is possible that you tend not to focus on when you walk into a room and you open a book or, or someone introduces you to a new topic. And the thing about Swiss cheese ends up being such a good metaphor for it is that if you are completely wide open in terms of you are not filtering any of the data that is streaming through you, you will desire to be curious, but you will end up being overwhelmed if you do not have some attentional filters of what to pay more attention to compared to others. And you shouldn't think of it as being judgmental. Those little holes in the Swiss cheese in some ways are discerning, is that there are some spots where you need to be discerning to focus a little bit more on this person as opposed to that person when you walk into a group. At the same time, is considering, do I want to focus on this this hole in the cheese or that hole in the cheese? And we should be making these conscious, intentional decisions of where I want to start eating, where I want to start looking, where I want to start consuming information and experiences. Wow, that was terrific. That's terrific. I'm going to go have some Swiss cheese for lunch. So um, <laughs> mine is um, a rubber band. How is curiosity like a rubber band? Um, I'm going to say that they're both this interesting combination of elastic and also a way of kind of bundling and putting things together. And um, I carry rubber bands with me everywhere. Um, and I think we should do the same with curiosity. So that is how curiosity is like a rubber band. And um, listeners, your word is <laughs> mustard. How is curiosity like mustard? Let me know. Hashtag analogy. Facebook, Twitter, wherever. Well, Todd, this has been great. And clearly there's a lot more to talk about. I want to get you back when you have investigated some of these strategies in the workplace and maybe for all of the other questions I had on my list that we never got to. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Bring on the, the bizarre, the bizarro questions at the end. Bring on those questions. That's very entertaining. <laughs> Great. And thank you for being with us for this Choose to be Curious conversation here on WERA 96.7 FM. You can find all my previous shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, or on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. And don't forget to send us your mustard analogy, hashtag analogy. Special thanks to my guest, Todd Cashton. I've got links to his website and many, many writings on curiosity all on my Facebook page. Check them out. Thanks, as always, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And before I forget, did you guess? Researchers have found that when people are curious to learn the answer to a question, they are better at learning that information, and they have greater recall of completely unrelated information they are exposed to at the same time. That's why I wanted to keep you guessing in the introduction. If you're curious, maybe you'll remember something from today. So I am not one of 12 kids but I have fallen down the face of a glacier and I have belly danced before a live audience and I've tried to follow my curiosity. I hope you will too. And I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. 
Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.